September 2008. It's the Ruby on Rails podcast. Remember Robert Stevenson, who sent in a few interviews last year? Well, he's done it again from eRubyCon in Columbus, Ohio. This one's with Jim Wyrick, chief scientist of EdgeCase. This episode is sponsored by the Ruby Row Advertising Network. Ruby Row is the first advertising network focused solely on helping companies reach Ruby and Ruby on Rails developers. You can find out more information at rubyrow.net. Hey everyone, this is Rob Stevenson from the Columbus Ruby Brigade, and I'm here at uh, eRubyCon and with special guest Jim Mark, who is the chief scientist at EdgeCase. And uh, pretty much everything you do uh, with Ruby means that you generally touch Rake and uh, Flexmock, and he was also part of the team that built up Ruby Gems. So mm-hmm. definitely a, a big part of the Ruby and Rails community, and I just would like to welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. This has been a really good conference so far, you know. It's, I've really enjoyed the talks, and, and it's really interesting stuff and dynamic stuff happening here. And we were both at last year's eRubyCon. Mm-hmm. It has grown maybe by three, a factor of three, the... the the crowd is three at least. If you if you don't count the speakers, it's probably a factor of five. <laughs> but definitely an excellent conference. Yes. Um, surprisingly, here in, in Columbus, Ohio, of all places. So I imagine I re- that. <laughs> I recently watched your Mountain West Ruby Conf talk, uh, shaving with Occam, that uh, anyone can go out to the Comfreaks mm-hmm. site and, and watch, and I highly recommend that. And one thing that really stuck out to me was the fact that. Most of us in the programming community are basically, you know, quote unquote, new um, to programming compared with programmers from the '70s and, and '80s. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that the struggles that you and other, you know, more experienced programmers had with early hardware and early programming languages is something that everyone should go through to make us better programmers? You know, I, I think everybody brings their own experience to the table when you start programming. So, And everybody starts at a different place. But I've always felt that the more you know about the entire system, the better you are at, at understanding how the thing works and how, how it's put together. I remember reading a, uh, a book called The Zen of Motorcycle Maintenance by, oh, I forget the fellow's name, Robert Persig maybe. I think that was the name. But kind of famous book back in the day. And he talks about how um, he, as a systems analyst, he, was a, he wrote documentations for systems and how he understood the entire system. And, and that worked for a motorcycle. He could go in, and because he understood how the motorcycle worked and how the, uh, the fuel got to the engine, how the electrical system worked, when there was something wrong with his motorcycle, uh, he could go in and he could fix it. He could uh, tune it. He could get it working better because he understood how the parts related to everything. And he contrasted that with his friend who just kind of considered the the motorcycle as, as the end all. I mean, it was just the motorcycle and without component parts. You know, that was the thing. And he's, he had this interesting story once where... His uh, handlebars were kind of shaking around, so he went and got a beer can and cut a beer can, uh, a little snippet of the beer can off, and used it as a shim in the place where the where the handlebar is gripped to the rest of the motorcycle, kind of tighten that up, and it worked great. And his friend was like appalled that he would use a a beer can <laughs> to fix his wonderful motorcycle. So yeah, yeah, I think I think understanding. 
the inner workings and how the coal pieces are put together is a big help. Now, whether you come from the 70s and that was a part of the culture or not, I don't know. But, yeah, I'm a big proponent of, you know, understanding the system, not not just um, treating it like voodoo or, or, or whatever. Right, because, I mean, today most, I mean, every, you know, modern, you know, popular language has garbage collection. You don't need to sure. worry about memory. You know, we're all running on machines that yeah, are... Yeah, you kids you know, got it easy today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and, and in your talk, you talked about um, programming at, at NASA on, you know, spare hardware that, that you had to <laughs> literally work around in order to, to get things done. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm wondering if that kind of, you know, you need to tinker with it as far as, as, as giving you more insight into, um, you know, more... Nowadays, most people don't know how the JVM works. You know, mm-hmm, it is mm-hmm. it is that that single motorcycle that just works, and when it breaks, you're not sure what to do with. Yeah, yeah. Is that something that can be taught, or it's just kind of a lost art and not so much needed anymore? But you know, I, I think to some degree that might be true. You see more and more programmers who know their little piece of it. They know how their their web app works, but they don't know the mechanics of how the you know, how does how does the internet work? How do, how does that HTTP request get from the browser to your server? I mean, there's lots of things underneath that are really interesting, like the whole TCP stack and 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 acknowledgments and and recovery, and which is really interesting. And if you don't know all that, you might not understand performance issues that that might come up because because of that. So yeah, I think I, I think it's not something that's taught, but it's something that you as a Developer as a programmer need to kind of go out and, and search out. If you're using the JVM, you know, investigate how how um, what kind of instructions are available in the JVM. You talk to Charles Nutter and and he'll give you all kinds of information about how his JRuby program compiles down to bytecodes. Well, if you don't know what those bytecodes are, you can't understand the performance issues that he's dealing with when translating a very dynamic language like Ruby into uh, uh, a JVM that was really designed for a static language like Java and the issues that he comes up with. So at a certain level, you can be happy at the Ruby level and and just program at that. But yeah, deeper understanding is always a good thing. I'm I'm a s- strong believer in that. <laughs> at the end of your shaving with Occam talk, um, the theme r- revolved around kind of keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and you showed a snippet of a real uh, in production Java server pages code. Oh Lord, yes. And. And counted essentially seven different languages yes. used in that code. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was JSP, Java Server Pages, mm-hmm. uh, Java, mm-hmm. CSS, mm-hmm. JavaScript, mm-hmm. HTML, mm-hmm. Uh, Java Tag Libraries, yes, and then XML. I think that's right, yes. And, and so we're not uh, quite free of the glut of languages in, in Rails either. You know, we no, get a good number no. of those. But what do you think... You know, your call was for simplification because, right. you know, this piece of code that had seven, you know, basically seven different languages in it is just overly uh, complicated. Um, what do you think we can do to reduce the number of different languages? Mm-hmm. I really believe it's good for developers to understand different languages, especially radically different languages. In fact, in my talk today, I'm going to introduce some languages you probably haven't seen before. But... 
my point about that is you had seven different ways of expressing things all in the same file. So to understand what that file did, there were seven, seven different things, different concepts, different notations, all fitting together and bunged together in that file. And that was the problem. I think languages are targeted to do specific things. I'm not saying get rid of HTML. Uh, it does a good job for what it does. CSS does a good job for what it does. But but a lot of those things, like the fact that you had JSP and JavaScript and expression language, I'm not sure that was on your list, but that was the another one, which is kind of like Java but not like Java. But, you know, it, it really tells me that the, that the language they were trying to use to kind of glue the thing together wasn't there. And the fact that they, essentially you have HTML, CSS, and they do, they do a good job. Then you have some kind of control language to, to uh, write in there. And that was a combination of Java and expression language. And um, I forget the other. The, the, tag the, 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 the tag libraries. Essentially all do the same job and they were using all three of them in the same file. And that's where I think we can, in that particular case, we can really simplify down. And Ruby has that you know, in in uh, in, in Rails, you just it's just Ruby, it's just Ruby in the tag file. So we've simplified that. Um, now, is that something say like Haml and SAS can do, where sure uh, it kind of breaks down some of the ceremony around HTML and yeah, and helps you um, you know get to the essence more quickly. Yeah, um, I like to use Markdown languages um, or Markup languages for a lot of that stuff too when I'm doing. Um, uh, like a wiki page or something, or something that's like that, using a simplified markup language to do your content, I think, is a great idea. And whether it's Haml or Markdown or um, Textile, those are all good choices for that. That introduces another language yet. Hey, but that's okay because it, it's targeted for that purpose. And as long as the language is serving its purpose and doing a good job, I don't mind using another one. It's just that that particular example was like just too many all in one place. So let's let's talk about your uh, presentations. You're you're giving. Uh, you gave one yesterday, and you're, you're giving mm-hmm. one today. Yes. So the one you're giving today is called uh, "What the Enterprise Can Learn from Your Mom." Yes. Please, please explain. Well, you want to know what your mom has to do with the enterprise? Yes. Um, actually, this talk is on a topic that I've been kind of interested in the past year or so. It's on the um, issue of concurrent programming. Which I've done a lot of concurrent programming in my time. I used to be a uh, um, uh, programmer for General Electric where we tested jet engines. And we would pull digital data off of a jet engine and uh, in real time and take that data and display it and um, send it off to another system. So there's a lot of real-time programming going on and a lot of concurrent programming. I cut my teeth on that kind of programming back, way back in the day. Um, so I'm aware of the issues of concurrent programming, but I, th- I think where in the old days that was really important for real-time type programmers to get their heads around, I think it's in the near future it's going to be important for your average everyday programmer to get their head around. If you look at the trend in computer systems over the past eight years or so, uh, it's a very, I've, and in fact, in my talk, I've got a very interesting graph that compares the number of transistors per chip and the clock speed on a chip. 
And they march up together in a logarithmic graph, according to Moore's Law. You know, the number of chips on a the transistors on a chip doubles every 18 months, right? That's Moore's Law. And you can see that happening all the way from the year 2000 on up to today in a fairly more or less straight line. However, in 2003, something really interesting happened to the clock speed. We hit a wall, and around 3 gigahertz... Uh, all of a sudden, the clock speed stopped advancing. My MacBook Pro that I bought two and a half years ago, so, so, so the model is about three years old, had a clock speed of, of um, two gigahertz at that time. Today, if you go to the Mac website and you get a brand new laptop, you know, three years later, that should be, according to Moore's laws, that should be four times faster. So, eight gigahertz, right? You can't buy an 8 gigahertz MacBook laptop. It's 2.6, a smidgen faster than what it was three years ago. So the clock speed has stopped advancing. And that's because of some physical laws involved. You know, the speed of light is only so fast, and the electron can only get from this side of the transistor to that side no faster than some physical limits. So clock speed is a real big factor. In it. And, we're, and we're right now we're inching up beyond that. We're into 3 gigahertz or inching up towards 4 gigahertz, but it's no longer going at a logarithmic speed anymore. So what we were depending upon in the old days to speed up our computers, clock speed is no longer going to give us that speed that we want in the future. So what's going to give us that speed? Well, the number of CPUs on a chip is increasing. Um, My MacBook Pro has two processors on it. Uh, new ones have, you know, uh, new systems out there. I think the Mac Pro, not the laptop, but the desktop unit, comes with eight cores today. Intel is talking about a 100-core chip that's coming out. Can you imagine 100 CPUs on a single chip? Your Ruby, single-threaded Ruby program, will be able to use one one-hundredth of the power of that chip because if you don't go threaded somehow... You can only take advantage of one CPU at a time. So to take advantage of future advances in computing, concurrent programming is going to be a really, really, really big thing. And concurrent programming is hard. It's not twice as hard as regular sequential programming. It's probably ten times harder or worse. So we got to start looking at language advances that help us deal with concurrent programming. And that's kind of the thrust of my talk today. Uh, and how does that tie into mom, right? Well, you know, your mom, she took you to soccer practice. She cooked the dinner. She, you know, she was multi-threaded all the time. So that's what we need to learn from mom, the how to handle multiple things at a time. Now, there have been discussions that um, with, uh, you know, the MRI, Mathis Ruby interpreter, that yes. th- we didn't learn lessons that the small talkers learned over, you know, how many years. Mm-hmm. Do you think... That will continue where we'll get into concurrent programming and we'll do the same mistakes that you learned not to do back in the 80s. And okay, so, so the current MRI interpreter, single-threaded, uses green threads. Um, so green threads versus real native threads. You know, just If someone doesn't know, green threads are implemented within the application. Uh, where native threads are on top of the OS, and native threads give you a little more concurrency. If you want to take advantage of multiple CPUs, you got to use native threads. Uh, so that's kind of the issue. And and Ruby, as you know, the MRI interpreter today does not use native threads. So 
even if you use threads within a Ruby program, you're only going to take advantage of a single CPU. And, and that's I, I'm assuming that's kind of what you're talking about, part of that. Um, you know, 1.9, they're moving to native threads, but there's another issue involved. And this is where concurrent programming is hard. Um, shared memory state between threads is a big problem because you always, always, always have to synchronize when you access shared memory between different threads of a program. Not doing so might work, you know, you know, 99 times out of 100 or, or 999 times out of 1,000, but it'll be, always be at one time where if, just, if the th- context switch happens at just the right place, you're going to lose data or corrupt data or do something. So you absolutely have to be correct to get threading right. Well, the easiest way to get threading right is to synchronize, use a mutual exclusion uh, critical region to to uh, not switch while you're in this section of the code. And what they do on interpreters, and this is true in, in Ruby MRI, this is true in Python, at least Python that I was familiar with a couple of years back, they have what's called a global interpreter lock, a GEIL which means you lock going into the interpreter, the interpreter does what it needs, and then coming out into your code, you unlock it. So there's a big hunk of execution where you cannot context switch. And you cannot take advantage of the threading while you're in the interpreter itself. That is hard to retrofit back into a program. I don't believe this MRI will ever get around that. Um, YARV, I think they're trying to do some stuff, but my understanding is that they're still having issues with having to lock the interpreter um i mean so our our you know what's the option for ruby is ruby going to be able to do concurrent programming or are we going to okay everyone now needs to learn erlang or is there going to be possibly a bridge i think i think the threading model in particular is just broken um i think people can write concurrent programs using threads if they're very careful but I think that the mental overhead of doing so is going to prevent a lot of people from doing it correctly. So um, I, th- I think threading in particular is just a broken model for that, the way, the way that Ruby handles it. And it's not just Ruby. It's the way that Java handles it. It's the way that um, POSIX threads handles it. I, that's just too much work for your average programmer to get correct all the time. I think there's other models of concurrent programming that are much easier uh, on your average programmer to get concurrency right. Unfortunately, you have to switch a language to do that because it's, it's something you can't retrofit back on top of your existing language easily. Um, Erlang is a great example of how, you, how to solve concurrent programming problems. The issue in pro- concurrent programming is shared mutatable memory shared mutatable state. Erlang fixes that by saying we have no mutable state in our program. We have no variables. They're only constants. Um, we can't reassign something to those. That, you know, Once they're set, once they're bound, they're always to that value. And so therefore, sharing is not an issue because you don't ever change the, shape, uh, change the state. Uh, messaging is handled by agents. Processes are cheap. So Erlang actually encourages threading by making processing cheap and allowing you to distribute the processing across as many core CPUs as you want to. And so that's one way. Um, 
the other language we're going to look today in, at my talk is uh, called Clojure, C-L-O-J-U-R-E, and it runs on top of the JVM. And it's a Lisp-like language. It takes a slightly different look at concurrency, but again, without the mental overhead of always locking shared memory access. So I think those are promising areas of interest. Is, is Ruby going to go away? I don't think so. No, I think you will use a concurrent language for the things that really need to be concurrent. Take advantage of that. And then you can always bridge back to your Ruby or to your Java or to your non-concurrent uh, language to, to do parts where concurrency isn't so so needed. So it's so. Um, I guess I'm proposing more languages, and I don't know how that goes <laughs> against my simplicity idea. But uh, but to ha- you know, concurrency is such a big problem. I think you need to take big steps to solve it. And I, and Ruby, as it stands right now, isn't set up to do that. Okay. The other talk that you gave uh, yesterday was uh, entitled a "Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief Modeling Systems." Yes. Um, and it was basically uh, you had a um, a, a modeling-focused uh, person and a, a data-centric. Uh, oh, of, oh, model, oh, oh, modeling versus data modeling. Right, yeah. right. What, as far as, and you did this in the context of a, a Rails app. Yes. Um, could you kind of explain what each side had uh, to offer and, and what the synopsis of your talk? Sure, was? sure. This this talk kind of came out of an I, of a desire to talk about the issues of different styles, different ways of of modeling software. You know, modeling is just a way of representing. Uh, the, you know, whatever you're trying to build, but to simplify it in a way that you can reason about it. You know, that's all a model is. And I, you know, as a physics major in college, we dealt with mathematical models all the time, where you use mathema- mathematics to describe some physical entity. In software, you use um, different kinds of models for describing this, the very complex system you want to build. And there's different approaches to modeling. And the, the two that butt heads all the time, at least in my world, seem to be those modeling techniques that are based upon the data in the system and those modeling techniques that are based upon the behavior of the system. And those two things are diametrically opposed um, in certain respects. The data modeling focuses on what needs to be stored and how you store it with the thought that, hey, data is around forever. Programs come and go, but that database is going to sit out there and you're going to use that database for 10, 20 years. So getting that right is really critical. The um, behavioral modeling is uh, typically used in OO because in in object orientation, we make our data private within the object. So it's the public methods and procedures that are exposed. So modeling the behavior, what an object does, is really, really important. And how it stores it behind the scenes, we don't care about this the data so much as long as it does the job that it's kind of intended to do. And so they have two entirely different purposes. Um, I was working with um, at one of my clients on designing a uh, security system where um, um, it was an authorization 
um, as opposed to authentication. Your authentication is where you log in and you provide a password to prove who you are. Authorization is a way of determining what you're allowed to do once you're identified. You're allowed to run this program. You're allowed to perform these functions in this program. You can do this, this, this. this. Uh, you can do this function as long as the amount of money that you're dealing with is, is under $50,000. If it's over $50,000, you have to be rated at a certain you know, certification level. You know, th- things like that. What you're allowed to do is the authorization. And I was working with a data modeler, and we fought all the time. And what I found really interesting, at least from my point of view, is that I very quickly determined the behavior of the system. You want to be able to answer the question, uh, if I am this person and I want to perform this function, can I do it, yes or no? So the methods involved in the interface of that was very clear and straightforward and did not change once, that was, once we captured that essential detail of the system. That did not change for the entire life of the project. You know, the, the problem we were trying to solve is, can I do this, yes or no, given that this is who I am and this is what I want to do? How you store that information in the database changed radically over the life of the project. We considered an LDAP system with a hierarchical data storage, and that didn't really work out. Uh, We went to a relational database. The schema for the database kept evolving. In fact, the day before we deployed, some of the, the DBA came and said, we want to change your database tables. Oh, my <laughs> goodness, not now. <laughs> but we changed the representation of the data in the database, and we tuned it and we got it right. But that did not affect the rest of the program, which was written to the behavioral interface. So, that's, so from my point of view, the behavioral interface was great because it was very stable and captured the essential issues. But without the data modeling, to get that data right, we wouldn't have been able to store it in an efficient manner, in a way that we could get to that data. So the two pieces of the puzzle play together, and they're intertwined. And it's not that one is better than the other, but models are useful or not useful. If they're useful to you, you use the model. If they're not useful, you throw it out and and find something else. And the different ways of modeling are, are useful for different parts of the process. And if you recognize that, then data modelers and OO modelers can live together quite happily, but it's, it's when they're kind of fighting over the same things, you get into trouble. <laughs> All right. So it's been about a year, right, okay. since you uh, left your full-time Java job. Yes. Some people would be surprised to hear. <laughs> and uh, landed at Edgecase as chief scientist, now doing, thankfully, mm-hmm. Ruby and Rails full-time. Full-time. Now, we talked um, yesterday, the day before, that because you're now happy with what you do during the day... Mm-hmm. That at night, you don't feel the need to escape into <laughs> Ruby programming. I don't have the urge to sit down and do Ruby programming at night because I do it all day now, which is, which is kind of a shame, which means the open source stuff I worked on has kind of been suffering as of late. Um, but uh, So for the community, will you go back to doing Java? So you can- uh, Take a hit for the team? Is that what you're asking me to do? I don't think so. <laughs> but thinking back, is there any advice that you can give to folks who are listening to this at their full-time jobs and wanting to earn a living with Ruby Rails, either they're doing .NET, Java, and, and thinking, you know, here you left, um, you know, you did Java consulting for 15 years or what? Well, not Java programming for 15, but yes. Basically, when, you know, starting with with when Ruby came over in sure. 2001. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, at that time you were doing Java and, and you finally were able to 
to leave and, and get a full-time job. Mm-hmm. What, would you, what advice would you, from that experience? You know, my, my dad always told me that no matter what I did in life is to do something you enjoy. And he, was, he ran a, a grocery store, and it was always his lifetime dream to, to run a grocery store and be able to manage that and meet the people and, and all that. And uh, it wasn't my lifetime dream, however. <laughs> but he always said, you know, find something you enjoy in life and do it. And if you can get paid for it, hey, all, it's all that much better. Um, so advice for people looking to leave the Java world. Look... Um, Look for opportunities. If it is your desire to do it, if you if you want to get in the Ruby thing, look for opportunities. Um, uh, do as much Ruby as you can on the side to get up to speed. Um, like I was doing the you know all the the open source projects I did that was preparing me for the day that I would leave the Java world and, and join and join the Ruby world professionally. So um, you know, look for those opportunities. Gosh, can I be more Come specific? to Rubicon. Come to Rubicon. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were. You know what? Someone just the other day was looking for someone to go to Hawaii and work in Ruby. So there you go. Uh, Ruby, Hawaii. You know, if you're young and no attachments to the locality, there you go. You've got your opportunity right there. Okay. Sounds pretty good. And I think most people would be surprised to hear that, you know, break and you work on Ruby Gems, mm-hmm. Flexmock, mm-hmm. and Builder all were done you know, in your spare time after you came home from your nine to five. I'm always amazed that people pay me to program. I mean, how, how lucky am I that people pay me to do what I love to do anyways? So yeah, I, I program in the evening sometimes. Um, and Ruby was, it was, is interesting before I always, I always look at outside programming projects of some form or another. Um, and, um, when I was doing C++, when I was doing Java, I was looking at other things as well. For the three years before I discovered Ruby, I was actually doing Eiffel programming, which is a fascinating language. And if you really want to um, get a good understanding of how software fits together as far as uh, post-conditions and preconditions and contracts, Eiffel's a great language to study to do that. However, I discovered it when I picked up Ruby. In the six months that I did Ruby right then, I wrote more software than I ever did in the three years I was playing around with, with Eiffel. So that says a lot about Ruby. You know, it's just a language that you love to get stuff done in, and, and it, just, it just grows on you. So I totally forget where we're going with this question. I just got, I'm just so excited about the, the whole the whole doing the Ruby thing. But yeah, yeah, um, do it in the evening. Um, uh, yeah, it, it becomes a passion for uh, for doing that. And now that I'm doing Ruby in the day, I'm beginning to explore other things. You know, the Erlang, the the closure stuff that I'm talking about today is part of that. You know, let's explore other ideas and. Uh, you know, see where those ideas take you. There's an interesting phenomenon, and Paul Graham wrote about this. That when you are immersed in a particular language and you think it's the, you know, the, the, the end all to all languages, how you view other languages is different. And uh, this is kind of funny coming from list programmers because they view list programmers <laughs> view themselves at the at the top of the programming ladder. You know, there's nothing better than Lisp. Um, but they so so Paul Graham says you know, talking to non-lispers, he says you look at languages less powerful than you and you recognize them as as less powerful. But when you look the other way at more powerful language like Lisp, 
All you see is weird languages. Um, take some time to study those weird languages because they have some ideas in them that your language might not support. And, and just because you're unfamiliar with it doesn't mean that it's not useful. It might have some um, useful stuff in it that you can bring back into whatever language you're using at the moment. So having worked in large Java shops, there's, mm-hmm. as you've seen, there's always a tendency to stick with you know, quote-unquote Java technology. Yes. When talking dynamic languages, generally it means groovy. Yeah. In the Java shops, how can someone successfully argue for JRuby and JRuby on on Rails over Groovy and Grails at those kind of environments? I've never had to make that argument myself, so I'm uh, I I can't give a lot of hey I've done it this way and succeeded at um, promoting JRuby over a Grail situation. But um, I, I think there's a couple things that you can look at in that. Uh, number one, the, the Grails phenomena. I, Groovy is great. You know, if you've got, if you're going to move to a dynamic language other than Java, gro- Groovy is not a bad choice. Okay, at least you're getting something out of it. Uh, the two things I see is that number one, Grails is a clone of Rails, so it's they're taking the uh, ideas of Rails and moving it over there, so it, it's lagging behind. The community support behind Rails is is growing and it's growing very quickly um, so if you're looking for something that embodies the ideas behind Rails why not use Rails rather than, than the knockoff thing um, Gro- Groovy as a language I looked at it when it first came out and it was very interesting but I really feel that the language as a whole doesn't have uh, it's kind of a patchwork thing It's it's got a little bit of Java it's got a little bit of uh, Ruby in it. It's got a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and there's no unifying uh, thing that holds the language together. Um, I look at Ruby and I can see its object model behind it, and that permeates the entire language and, and defines how the language works. And it's a very unifying principle. Grails is kind of a little bit of this. Or excuse me, Groovy is a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and uh, so so there's a. I think if you're looking at a language level. Uh, Ruby as is a, is a better language from that point of view. Now it's a different language in Java, and that's the kind of the argument for Groovy. We'll say, yeah, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but it is a little bit of Java. So moving from Java to to Groovy is is uh, easier for Java programmers, and that may or may not be true. Um, but you also got to realize that the fact it's so close to Java might lead people to miss use it, to use it like it is Java rather than to use it like a dynamic language. Program in Java in Groovy. Yes, yes. You can program in Java in any language. And the fact it looks a lot like Java might mislead people into into using it incorrectly. So it might be actually better to go to something that's radically different, to break your mind from this statically typed um, mindset that uh, that you get from programming in Java. Um, I think I think an example of that is the saying that oh when we're in Groovy we can take advantage of Spring, and to me that's exactly the wrong attitude because when you're in, in Java Spring is a great wonderful thing because it it gives the language flexibility of, on creating things. However, in a dynamic language, something like Spring is actually a, a, a boat anchor. 
it's it's too much too much for something you don't really need in a dynamic language um you know look at the dependency injection frameworks in ruby you know everyone's written one no one uses one uh, and and so you bring a lot of baggage with you from the Java world, and I don't think moving to Groovy is as good at filtering out that baggage as moving to something like JRuby. So so there's some thoughts on that. But you know what? If you're going to move to a dynamic language, Grails is not a bad step. I just think there's a better step to go to go all the way to Ruby or JRuby. All right, and you have answered this to some degree. Uh, but what excites you right now in the world of? Ruby and Rails and just development in general? I, I think there's a, a great excitement. I'm really excited about some of the things that are happening outside the Rails uh, community. Uh, I, I, Rails is great because it really boosted the recognition of Ruby in the eyes of the outside non-Rubyist world. And DHH was a great promoter of Rails and caught a lot of attention. But I don't think Rails is the last web framework at all. And, and uh, now, after working in it professionally for a year, uh, you begin to see you begin to see the warts, which is a good thing. So, what comes after that? I'm really excited about the stuff they're doing with uh, Merb and Data Mapper. I think those are worth a look look at um, and how they're coming. And I, it's to see some web frameworks. Um, they don't even have to be as popular as Rails, but if they explore some different ideas, different ways of doing things, I think that's a, a, a big advantage there. Uh, so that's some of the exciting things I see in, in the Rails or the Ruby community right now. All right, and, and when not in front of a computer, which I'm sure most people can't envision you, I do actually. I do actually get away from my computer occasionally. So what do you like to do to, to recharge your battery? Um, Last this last year at RailsConf, we had a musician's birds of a feather where uh, a couple people brought some instruments together and got that. And I'm a guitar player from way back when, and I think in seventh grade I got my first guitar. So I've been playing guitar for like forever. And I we, we went to RailsConf and they had this musician thing, and I didn't have my guitar with me, and I, I found it very frustrating. Um, so I went out and just recently bought a travel guitar that I take with me now. It fits in the overhead bin of an airplane. I can take it to conferences. And uh, when I'm at home, I take this travel guitar and it's on a hook that I hang up right by the wall, right by me. So while I'm waiting for my unit test to run, which, by the way, take way too long, and Stu Halloway would be very upset with when he found out how long my unit tests take on my current project. Uh, while they're running, I reach for the guitar and I play a few chords and, and keep my fingers happy. And I, I, I've been kind of getting back into the whole guitar thing recently. So where can people uh, follow you and uh, read up and, 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 and keep in touch with, with what you're doing and what excites you? Um, i got a blog, so you can go to onestepback.org, and I do occasionally still update that. Um, I'm on Twitter at Jim Wyrick uh, is my handle on Twitter, and I, uh, although I'm not as prolific on Twitter as some other people, I do uh, try to keep posted of what's going on and you know make interesting pithy observations <laughs> well thank you so much for your time jim and uh i, I appreciate you sitting down well, thank you thanks for having me